Kentucky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And I just got to do my switch over because we're broadcasting just on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com tonight. We are not on WBSM's airwaves because the Red Sox are broadcasting and they're in Texas, which means they'll be broadcasting throughout the entire Spooky South Coast time slot tonight, which we can overcome. We can broadcast solely on the stream, but it's a shame for the WBSM listeners that they're going to miss out on tonight's show because I think this is, I, I can already feel that this is going to be one of my favorite episodes that we do because we've said in the past that part of doing this show means that we can use it to talk to our heroes a bit. Okay. And we've had the chance over the years to talk to people that we would have always wanted to talk to. And uh, one of the things that I was interested in when I was younger, and I know you were as well, Moniz, was conspiracy theories, and especially conspiracy theories that have popped up around political assassinations. Did did you take the course at UMass? I know you you took courses at UMass. I took courses at UMass, but I did not take it with um, Melanson. But yes. I knew him, and I spoke with him, and I actually got to see the Zabruder film when he was able to get the original copy. So that was, to me, that was the eye-opening experience was when I was in college. You know, as somebody who had always been interested in strange and unusual topics, when other kids in eighth grade were coming into school the next morning talking to all their friends about what they had watched on the night before his episode of Full House or Home Improvement or you know, Roseanne. shows like that. Yeah, Roseanne. <laughs> I guess, well, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. But I would be going into school and I'd be talking with my friend, especially my friend Vic, about what we watched on Unsolved Mysteries the night before. You know, I'll never forget the JFK assassination episode where they did the audio. Uh, they they, they uh, compared the audio from the motorcycle, yeah, police motorcycle uh, CB recorder uh, with some of the other audio from the Zapruder film and from other things. Like, um, well, from the from – the, uh, uh, the news, the uh, okay. uh, Dallas news station. Right. I was going to say the Zabruder film the didn't guy, have The guy audio. that you see with the boom microphone. Yeah. That's the, He was the guy that was there from the radio station. And so they compare all that and, you know, that kind of got me really into, wait, wait a minute. Mainstream media is talking about these things that I've read in books that, in magazines that, you know, the librarian always looked at me funny for checking out. So that made me realize that maybe there are some people that are paying attention to this that aren't just whack jobs like I was. And so then I go to college, and I don't think I've ever really talked about this much on the air, but uh, when I went to college, I was studying English and, and writing, writing communication, but my minor was in political science. And so there was in the course catalog a course that drew my attention more than anything else in the entire course catalog. Okay, well, maybe the art of rock and roll music. <laughs> that one was probably maybe one and one A when it comes to, you know, these are classes I got to take. And then I ended up dropping art of rock like two weeks into the course because I just, it wasn't what I was expecting. Oh. But the, the name of the course was Political Assassinations in America. And it was taught by Dr. Philip Melanson. And taking that course changed my life. Because it kept me from just accepting the face value story. It kept me from 
just accepting what I was being presented and not doing my own digging and my own research. And it instilled in me to ask certain questions. So it really was something that I was able to take out of that course and kind of apply it to the rest of my everyday life. And I think it shaped me as a journalist. I think it shaped me as a talk show host. And I think it shaped me as a person. So in taking that course, Dr. Melanson was one of the foremost experts on the RFK assassination. Yes. And UMass Dartmouth, or for those of you who went to school SMU in the earlier years, yes, it was SMU, but UMD has the RFK archives in the library. So all of the papers, everything that's part of the collection of RFK is in the UMass Dartmouth library. So I said, going into this week, we thought we weren't going to have a show because there was an event. Uh, things got moved around, and so the event got canceled. We're able to do a show. I say, we've never done a show on the RFK assassination. We did JFK. We've done multiple JFK shows. Yeah. Uh, we've even done some Martin Luther King yeah. shows, but we've never done an RFK show. And so it just worked out. We even did Lincoln. Oh yeah. yeah, we've 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 done some some of the more obscure ones too, but we've never talked about RFK, and it just so happens that it works out that this is the 50th anniversary coming up. Yeah, this week of the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. So I said, "This is fate. This is destiny. We have to do a show on it." So I reached out to the RFK collection because I know Dr. Melanson's no longer with us, mm. and so and I also know that nobody took over the course when he passed. He had had multiple. Uh, you know, student yeah. teachers that had been involved with it, but nobody picked up the mantle. So I knew that there was nobody there on staff that was teaching that course, but I figured maybe there was somebody there that might have studied with them that would be considered, you know, a, a pretty good authority on it. And so I reached out there because we always try to go local first if we can. And the archivist got back to me and she said, listen, I'm I'm sorry, but I'm not well-versed enough and all of it to come on and talk. I don't think there's anybody left on the staff that could. She did give me a link, and she gave me permission to include it in the show, but we're not going to be able to work it in, but maybe we can add it on as like a digital extra. They actually have – they're digitizing the RFK archives slowly but surely, and there's a, she sent me one particular link that's an hour-long conversation uh, with Phil Melanson conducting some interviews. So maybe we can kind of add that mm. in. She did give me permission to add it into the show. But there's just nobody really picking up that mantle. And so I said, okay, if I can't get somebody local, I'm going to go right for the top. And I'm going to try and get one of the, the biggest names that I can to come on and talk about this. And, of course, you know who my go-to guy for any conspiracy was for years. And he's no longer and with And he's us. no longer with us. But the great Jim Mars yeah. would always be my first call. And I said, oh, man, we can't get Jim Mars. But I, I'm just thinking back, who else did we did we read in that course? Who else was part of the syllabus? Who else was part of the required reading for that course? And number two, right behind Jim Mars, was our guest tonight, Dan Maldea. The book that he had written had just come out. Uh, I, I took this course in 97. His book came out in 95. But already it was on the list of books that we had to get from the – and that was like the only time I didn't mind going into the, <laughs> to the library and having to drop hundreds of dollars on books. 
because generally you're spending hundreds of dollars on textbooks. Right. It's like, what am I ever going to do with this later on? But I had a nice little conspiracy and assassinations library that I still have to this day. These books are still in uh, a safe place in a box in my basement where I have all my other, you know, college papers and everything. So that was money well spent because those were books that were well read. So I said, let me just reach out to Dan and see if he's still doing interviews and if he'd still want to. And sure enough, there's a story in the Boston Globe. Two of Robert F. Kennedy's children want to have a new investigation open into his assassination. Dan Maldea is someone who has said there's no need for that because of the investigative work that he did in putting together his book. So we're going to have him on and he'll talk with us a little bit about that uh, coming up in just a bit. And throughout the course of the discussion, if anybody has any con- uh, any questions for us, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. The phone lines will be open throughout the show. Uh, we are going to try and cover as much of the theories and the discussions around the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy that we can. I understand there's a good possibility that we can only really scratch the surface in a 90-minute interview with Dan Maldea, but we're going to try and do the best that we can to cover as many of the bases. Because I'm somebody who, like you, Moniz, I can't get enough of the JFK assassination. I can't get enough of pulling back the layers, and you you develop pet theories over the years, but sometimes those pet theories change yep. depending on what else you find. And sometimes what you find is what you thought happened turned out to be wrong. Right. So you're going to, and that's, we'll talk about that with Dan because that's kind of what happened with him uh, when it came to putting together his book and, and doing his research. But, I, you know, we've looked at that case a million ways to Sunday. We've had people on that were directly involved. We've had people on that have uh, examined it from a distance. And I think that that case will always continuously have more layers to pick apart. Even if Donald Trump does decide to put out all the all the documents that are remaining on it, it's still not going to be enough to satisfy people. We will never know the real or whole I don't, truth. I agree. I don't think we ever yeah. will. But with, with the RFK assassination, this took conspiracy theory to a whole other level. Because we went beyond just being... Well, you can kind of sell to the general public the fact that the CIA or the intelligence community might have wanted to take out John F. Kennedy. You can sell to the general yeah. public that the mafia might want to, to take out John F. Kennedy. You could sell to the general public the Russians or the Cubans or, or any of the yeah. – all of those theories are plausible. Oswald being a double agent, plausible. There's a lot to that that has some degree of acceptability for people that even if they don't think that it's what actually happened, they can at least entertain the notion that it's a possibility. With the RFK case, we're talking about a completely different set of circumstances here. We're talking about, at least in Sirhan Sirhan's basic defense for himself, if we're going to break it down to its least incredulous possibilities, he's just saying he doesn't remember any of it. He's saying that he basically blacked out 
or went into a, a different place. Mm-hmm. That's hard enough for people to, to swallow. Then you're going to start bringing in the Manchurian candidate idea yeah. that he was programmed to do this. And now you're getting into something else that just seems so overwhelming to the average person to buy into. But to people like us and, and to our listeners who have gone deeper into what reality is and have gone deeper into what the government has done and looked into over the years, and they know about some of these secret programs. MK Ultra, And not to mention, there's plenty of others that we yeah. probably don't know anything about, even to this day. If you're willing to accept those, the story doesn't sound nearly as crazy as it does on the surface. There's an entire – there's a whole new subset of things that you have to learn to be able to look at the RFK case with a completely open mind. And so we're going to try and bring as much of that to the table as we can tonight. But again, as we mentioned, you know, Dan Maldea has spent spent a number of years researching this, talked to key players involved in it, to this day is still talking to key people that are involved in it. So we're armchair quarterbacking this investigation when he's actually done it. So he's going to join us to talk about that. And you can check out his website throughout the course of the night, moldea.com, M-O-L-D-E-A.com, and you will find tons of information on there. You can, I mean, obviously we highly recommend that you go out and you get the book. You want to go out and get The Killing of Robert F. Kennedy? But you can, I'm sorry, Matt, I'm going to keep moving around. I apologize. But you can just go to his website and pull up a whole bunch of information that you it, – it's it's it should be called rabbithole.com <laughs> because when you go to the site, you're dropping yourself into this world and you will spend hours just – I was – so this morning, the internet was down at my house. It went down last night. Still don't know what happened really. Uh, Comcast gave me a story that uh, an Eversource line had fallen onto a Comcast line, and I, I I don't know why that allowed me to have slow internet, but not wireless internet, all kinds of weird things going on. It was I, the Russians hacking your router. Well, I mean, that was a thing yeah. this week, but I did reboot my router when, you know, just to be safe, because I reboot my router all the time anyway. And then I'm thinking to myself, I'm not a, I'm not one of these, like, you know, looking out my window for black helicopters kind of guys. Why are you looking at me? Well, because you warned us years ago when we started doing the show yeah. that that stuff was going to happen. And I said, no, there's no way because we're small time and, you know, we're just a, a, a some, I mean, obviously we associate with you who was already on the radar, but I was like, nobody's ever going to put me on their, on their watch list. But if ever I thought that I might've been on one, Last night was it because I'm sitting at my computer trying to research the RFK assassination and my computer goes dead. My internet goes dead and I can't access any of the things that I'm trying to access. So I go onto my phone and I'm trying to get as much of the information as I can on my phone. And as I'm doing that, I'm getting booted off my phone internet. Now I can go to other websites. No problem. Okay, and you're talking to your phone's network, not to your router, right. not wireless type of thing. In the interest of full disclosure, my phone gets terrible signal at home without the Wi-Fi. True. 
But still, it just seemed weird that as I was going to, you know, if I went to, even if I went to Facebook, it would take a while to load up, but it would load up. If I went to check my email, it would work. If I went to, you know, I was popping on the Belgab site, that would work fine. But I would try to look up this RFK stuff, whether I was reading just the simple Boston Globe story that came out the other day, or if I was going to Dan Maldea's site, I would just get booted off. So it was making me a little paranoid. <laughs> so we are broadcasting on the internet talking about this stuff tonight. So who knows what could happen tonight? Who knows who's listening? And I hate to be that guy because I feel like that's so phony and self-aggrandizing when, you know, paranormal talk show hosts or fringe talk show hosts who come on and talk about conspiracies and things like that, when they start saying, you know, they're watching, they're listening, they're going to keep us from talking about things that they don't want us to talk about. I think that that's just hollow and it plays on people's um, paranoia. And I think that it is, uh, it's just cheap. But in this case, I am a little kind of worried. I don't know what will happen when I go home tonight, if there'll be a dark sedan parked down the street <laughs> watching me as I go in. I don't know. But I'm willing to take that risk because I do want to get into some of this stuff with Dan Maldea tonight. Because, And as I'm thinking about and, and we've talked about this in the past, that we can go years without looking at a case. And I've gone years without looking at the RFK case because we were so focused on JFK all the time and MLK that it's been quite a while since I really looked into this. But as soon as I start reading about it, it all comes flooding back. And maybe maybe I'm programmed <laughs> for the stuff. Maybe I've been... You know, taken into some secret program and put it, have this all installed in my brain because it just comes flooding all right back. And uh, then I decided to, because I've paid so much attention to this from the perspective of the conspiracy theory and, and the assassination itself, and I focus so much on the death of RFK. Yeah. But I said I I need to do a little more research on his life. And uh, I'd been watching the the Kennedys documentary series that was on CNN, and I said, you know, let's see if I can get something a little better. So I go on Netflix, and they have a series called Bobby Kennedy for President, four part series, four hours, and I just watched the whole thing once my internet started working, <laughs> and I watched the whole thing start to finish, and got a better appreciation for who he was as a person. I mean, I always admired and respected him as a person, but to get a more intimate portrait into his life and to see how much his murder affected everybody around him and made a lasting legacy. You know, John Lewis would not have run for Congress had it not been, you know, that, that Bobby Kennedy had inspired right. him. So I feel like, you know, I feel, I'll, I feel like I can enter into tonight's discussion with far more reverence than I would have had I not spent that time today. Because generally I would have been all about the conspiracy, all about the, the theories, and, and, and not about the man. So tonight we're going to try and be reflective of the man as well. And I know that here on WBSM, that will probably take part in the daily discussions uh, on Monday and Tuesday as we observe the 50th anniversary of his assassination. But... I feel like tonight is our chance to kind of do that as well. So 
if anybody wants to call in throughout the course of the show and have some RFK memories, we can we can do that as well. Again, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420 are the numbers to call out through uh, call in throughout the course of the night. And we have the chat room open at Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com and on our YouTube channel. So you can always jump in there. Want to say hi to everybody in there. A lot of gabbers in there tonight. I'm just watching uh, all the roll-by of some of the questions. I see. <laughs> okay. Apparently people have been asking me questions. Maybe I should read. Well, there's multiple <laughs> There's multiple mats, and some of them are new. Okay. So if if, if you want to get Matt Koss's uh, attention, you can call him Matt. If you want to get Moniz's impression, call him Mon- attention, call him Moniz. That's what he's used to. That's how we do it here. So, uh, but, um, and I, I, I do want to say that, uh, we also have the rules still in effect in the chat room. If you want to ask a question that we're not getting to, you can ask it in all capital letters. We won't think that you're yelling at us. We'll just know that it's standing out amongst the rest of the regular chatting going on. And if you want to get in touch with us via uh, Twitter, you can do that as well at spooky SC or use the hashtag spooky live. We can read your questions that way as well. Just try not to make any statements on Twitter that will get our show canceled. That seems to be the trend this week. So let's not uh, let's not fall down that road ourselves. And uh, also, you can email us spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com. <coughs> Those are the different ways to get in touch with us throughout the course of the night. And But again, as I always say, the best way is the old-fashioned way. We want to hear your voice, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. And we'll be joined in just a few moments by Dan Maldea. But, uh, Moniz, I do want to ask you something. A few weeks ago, we would had on uh, Cliff Barrickman to talk about Finding Bigfoot. Yep. And, uh, and as we found out, the episode that aired last week was the series finale. Yeah. So the series is, is done, but it seems like uh, no. from what I've seen from Cliff – and uh, and some of the other guys posting on social media, just because the show is over on Animal Planet, it seems like there's some more stuff going on in the works here. Correct. I was talking to some people, and it is not, you know, completely done. Like I said, there's going to be a, a possibility that it's going to move to a different location on on the dial, so to speak. Well, that's we talked <clears throat> about that a bit last week, too, that with the... Merging of some networks, there will be some more opportunities for other shows that had to draw on a certain audience, certain number to be on a certain network, mm-hmm. uh, to be considered viable for that network, that now they're going to have the chance to maybe have extended life on smaller networks where there isn't such a, a, a pressure to bring in such high numbers. So I think that would be a perfect fit going forward. But you'll you'll keep us up to date with anything that you hear about that, I'm sure, and We'll see where it goes because I saw, you know, when they announced that it was the series finale, I saw a lot of people on social media saying, like, wait, this is actually one of the few shows that was still entertaining to us. You know, this is one of the few shows where we could watch it and not feel like we were being talked down to or that it was being intentionally cheesed up for entertainment value. So I think if that audience is there and it's that passionate – they can find a way to keep it going one way or another. No, no other, uh, no other secrets that you're going to spill on it. I, it. Nothing's set in stone, and I don't want to try and 
I just, throw a monkey wrench into things. I just, I just want to know: is there a chance for you to be a guest star as the actual creature? That's always a possibility. All right. Okay. Because uh, you know we are going to get uh, Bob Gimlin on at some point. You just let me know when I can and get him. The sooner the better. It's okay. Over. But uh, when we when we have him on, I do want to let him know that there's a distinct possibility that he's actually being interviewed by the direct descendants. One of the direct descendants of what he caught on film. Uh, gee, thanks. I've seen you walk. I've seen your <laughs> gait. And if that, if any of you have never seen Moniz in action, check out some of our YouTube videos because you'll see what I mean. <laughs> I'll never forget the time that we went into the woods to check out the cicada infestation in uh, in Forestdale. Yep. Outside Otis Air Force Base. And I was like, if ever I was going to be in the woods with a creature, this would be the one. Because none of the other creatures are going to mess with me. It's like when when Bigfoot comes around and everything else in the, in the forest goes silent. That's what it's like. Moni shows up, all the cicadas stop buzzing. It's like <laughs> that wasn't, it wasn't inaccurate. They're like it's like oh our king is here, so we can uh, we can take this call real fast. I think before we get into it with Dan Moldea. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How are you? Hold on, i got to press some buttons here. All right, are you with us now? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yep. We're going to boost you up a little bit more. Yeah, my name is Michael. I go by Liberace on Belgav. How you doing, buddy? Hello, <laughs> Liberace. How you doing? I'm all right. I like your, uh, I don't know, your approach to doing radio. You sound pretty good. Thank you. Thank you. So you guys are talking about the RFK assassination tonight. I yes, guess. and um, I don't know how much of that you've covered thus far, but it's my understanding that the whole conspiracy discussion as it relates to that subject comes down to whether or not RFK was shot from behind. Right. In and terms of what killed him or not, Sirhan Sirhan was supposedly standing in front of him, and the, I guess, autopsy itself says that the bullets that killed him came from behind. Is that correct? Well, the the according to the uh, witnesses, the uh, uh, Sirhan Sirhan was about a, a foot to three feet away from him, standing in front of him, and the fatal shots appear to have come from behind at very close range. So Dan Maldeo will get into a little bit with us uh, with, with his research and what he's found, but not, not to speak to him, but speak for him. But basically he's saying that the way that uh, RFK would have reacted to somebody being in front of him with a gun would have caused him to bend and turn and cause the shots to, to hit where they hit. It is interesting that Sirhan says he has no, no recollection of the shooting. There's no doubt, there's no debate as to whether Sirhan was in there and as to whether he had a gun. But the And there's no debate as to whether he fired a gun in that kitchen at the... Uh, at, was it the ambassador? Right, yep. The the mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no question about that. But it is really odd that Sirhan doesn't remember such a seminal moment in his life, something that he has been in prison for what? How many years? Uh, well, 45? Almost 50. 50. Like yeah. um, it'll be uh, 40, 49, I think, uh, in the fall. I or, have the flu, so my on-the-fly math skills kind of suck at the moment. My, hey, when I'm in full health, mine are terrible, so I'm not going <laughs> to fault you. But, you know, one thing, just as a general point that I would make, I used to be so 
headfirst into the Kennedy assassination. I believed all the theories, the conspiracy theories. I was just sucked in by the whole badge man thing and so many aspects of that case. As the years have gone on, I mean, badge man, a good example for that to have actually been a guy shooting at Kennedy. He would have to have been something like 30 feet behind the line of trees there at the fence and elevated up on a stand about 15 feet in the air in order for that to have been a human being. Um, we, I think, can pretty well establish Oswald shot Officer Tippett. Um, there are just so many. We know he had a gun. We know he had a rifle. There's just on and on. The magic bullet, the idea that this bullet had to turn in the middle of the air, it turned out not to be the case. Connolly was on a jump seat. He was inset by half a foot, and he was lower than Kennedy. And when you know that, the trajectories perfectly line out. It's just a straight, perfect line. There have just been so many things over the years that once, where at one time I was totally into all of this, as I've gotten older and seen more bits of information about the whole case, it seems more and more clear to me that what was originally said to have happened is pretty much what happened. And I kind of wonder in terms of the RFK case, if maybe since there was just over the years so much more attention placed on the JFK assassination, we never had the uh, the rate of interest on the RFK case relative to the JFK case. Well, I do... And now, maybe there's a ramping up of that where it's just beginning to mature and we'll slowly over time start to see that perhaps the way we think things happened actually is the way they happened there, too. I don't know. There is a There is a security guard who, and I don't recall his name, but... He is suspected of being, if there in fact was a second gunman, right, in the ambassador uh, kitchen. Uh, Gene Caesar, yeah, of being that man. And uh, and uh, when we have Dan on, he he actually interviewed. He actually became quite close uh, with Gene Caesar. So we'll talk with him about that uh, as well. The name of the security guard? Uh, yeah, I think it was Thane Eugene Caesar. I think it was his name, if I'm getting it right. And uh, so we'll we'll find out some some more from him about uh, what he thinks about that. But as I said earlier, I think part of the problem with the RFK assassination is people hear you know the Manchurian Candidate stuff and the you know the programmed assassin stuff, the automatic writing, RFK must die, all of that, and it makes the idea of there being a conspiracy so much harder for them to swallow because those are such fringe elements to it. But there is still enough to believe. Just saying. There was a second gun in the room when it happened, and that person likely fired that gun. So just having that bit of information is enough to uh, make me say this is worth pursuing the, the second gun idea, and, and that's what Dan did, and he just came to a conclusion that wouldn't have been what I would have expected. There were two or three different government programs focused on the concept of controlling people, manipulating their minds, and even doing so in such a way that they wouldn't know it had happened. And I think that's one of the ideas in the RFK assassination is that Sirhan was a uh, an asset in one of these programs and that there was a uh, there was a woman wearing a particular style of dress that numerous witnesses saw seated on some sort of a uh, tray apparatus of some kind. And she blurted out some line just before the shooting that every, or it's my understanding, some people thought was odd. 
Right. And in retrospect, it's been theorized that that was like the trigger phrase to trigger Sirhan to begin to engage. But, my God, the mechanics of arranging all of that, having Kennedy in the right place at the right time, Sirhan at the right place, mm-hmm. her at the right place, everything working out just so perfectly to manage all of that, I can't imagine. I mean... It doesn't make a lot of sense. But I think if we're going to talk about conspiracies between the uh, JFK and the RFK case, I do think it's more likely in the RFK case that what actually happened isn't what we've been told happened. Fair enough. Between the two cases. Anyway, you guys, have a good night. Well, thank you very much for the call. Bye. Have a good one. And, uh, and like I said, we're going to get we're going to get into a lot of that stuff with with Dan Maldea, and it's going to be hard for me because a lot of his work goes against what I thought when I was, you know, because I went into this having read Dr. Melanson's book on the case. I went into this having, uh, you know, learned what I learned in the course in the class, and then I went back and I learned, I went back and read his book, uh, Dan Maldea's book, and said I had already kind of made up my mind about things, mm-hmm. and. To know that that's kind of the same approach that he went through as well, you know, it makes me think, okay, if it changed his mind and he's that close to it, then I have to let it change my mind as well. And now let's see if we can take another call here. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. Hey, guys. What's up? Long-time listener here. Hello. Thanks for calling in. I'm just curious. Um, there's a rumor going around that Bobby withheld insider information or classified information due to, like, national security reasons. Well, he would have had a ton of inside information, having yeah, been the attorney general. From the public, you know, because he thought it would jeopardize our national security. I'm just curious. Do you think Ted Kennedy knew anything about RFK? Well, Ted Kennedy uh, actually spoke out on behalf of Sirhan Sirhan and, and, and actually tried to make sure that he got life in prison as opposed to the death penalty uh, under the under the premise that, you know, Bobby would not have wanted to have another life taken as a result of his life being taken. But it's it's entirely possible that uh, – because it's very strange if you go back and you listen to Ted's uh, admittance of what happened with the whole Chappaquiddick incident. Okay. You know, he even speculates out loud in this press statement, in this live statement on television, you know, I, I kind of have to wonder if there isn't a curse over my family. Hmm. And I almost wondered if that isn't like a, a code word. You know, not that he's speaking about there actually being some sort of, uh, you know, woo-woo curse on his family, but maybe right. what he means is maybe, like, this is just going to keep happening to our family again and again because there's outside forces that don't want us to to be in the positions that we are getting into. Yeah. It makes total sense. It could have been his subconscious coming out, too. Who knows? Right. But I, I think he definitely, I think uh, RFK definitely had all kinds of information about all kinds of things, uh, having been... For involved in the McCarthy hearings, having gone up against the uh, Jimmy Hoffa and gone up against the mafia, uh, just everything he would have known about the JFK assassination that, you know, I'm sure he never accepted the Warren Commission, uh, and what was told there and, and not getting along with, with, uh, Johnson and everything going on in Vietnam. There was a lot of stuff that he probably, right. A lot of stuff that he could have been spilling the beans on, uh, that nobody wanted to have come out into the, into the public. It's uh, it's it's certainly it, when you look at how I mean they were calling for him 
at the 68 Democratic National Convention, they were calling for Ted Kennedy to be the nominee. They were calling him the night before and saying, we want you to, to step in. He wasn't even campaigning for it. He wasn't even trying to get it, but they said, we want you to be the guy. And, and Humphrey even said, I'll step aside. I'm sorry? Yeah, he was definitely a symbolism for his brother and all that. So, so for him to have... An iconic president who got shot when he was so young. It's uh, and, and and me maybe maybe too maybe he thought he would have just ended up facing the same fate. Yeah. All right, well, thank you very much for the call. All right, thank you. Looking forward to the show, man. Thanks. Have a good night. You too. That's. I mean, you gotta if you're if you're Ted Kennedy, and I know you know. Thankfully, we're not on the radio when I'm saying this because <laughs> we have a lot of callers here during the week that uh, are very anti Ted Kennedy for being in the heart of Kennedy country here. But uh, if you're Ted Kennedy. You've got to wonder if, you know, you wouldn't have met the same fate. And I know that he ran later on. Uh, what did he run in 1980? Yeah. Uh, but at that time, in the in the politically charged time of 1968, if he didn't think that he would have had the same fate befall him. And I'm not trying to make excuses for Chappaquiddick. Well, and Chappaquiddick if, happened in 1971. I'm, I'm not making excuse. I'm just saying, like, when, when he talked about that, I'm not making excuses for that, but you do have to kind of feel for the guy in terms of, you know, what what is this luck that has befallen us? What is this fate that has befallen our family? Because you can get into all the stuff that you want to get into about Joe Kennedy and the way that he made his money and the, the, the deals that he made. And uh, not everything was above board. Not everything was above board in how Jack got elected. You know, we can get into all that stuff, too, uh, at a later date. But you can understand that there was a lot of those machinations going on behind the scenes. Fine. You invite some of that bad stuff to happen to you when you're circumventing things the way that they did. But the general premise that he taught his children were was you – have a very fortunate lot in life because of what I've been able to provide for you. And you have a duty to use that lot in life, to use that life of privilege that you have to make life better for others <laughs> to, but it's a, I'm not talking from a political standpoint. We can, we can fight about policy all that we want. No, it has to do with, well, I, I, I didn't share this with you guys before, but, my grandmother and what would be my great grandfather were were involved with the Kennedys. Um, my great grandfather Cornelius O'Connell was best friends with Honey Fitz, and my grand my grandmother used to be their nanny. So I can tell you a, a bunch of personal stuff behind the scenes, and yeah, what they can do for other you know versus how they treated other people is a whole nother story. So I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. Well, but in general, I mean, the entire family is involved in some sort of, at least on the surface, benevolent on the organizations. Surface, yes. yeah. I'm talking about things like Citizens Energy. I'm talking about things like, and, uh, you're looking at me, um, you're directly looking at me and your eyes are saying Venezuelan oil as I say that. I am, but, <laughs> you know, um, the idea of giving something back, and and I, I honestly think after, especially after watching that that Bobby Kennedy documentary, I honestly think that he was moved and motivated to help the poor people that he saw. 
But uh, okay, you're you you got to at least think that if you're doing good things, good things will come back to you. But instead, they had a lot of bad come back to them, and some of it of their own making. Uh, especially mm-hmm. if you look at some of the scandals that have happened in the later years. You know, if you want to look at like, you know, Michael Skakel and all that kind of stuff. Oh, oh. But, I mean, JFK Jr., aside from just being inexperienced at flying and still flying anyway, I mean, come on. Like, that's the kind of tragedy that you just look at that and you say, well, why does that happen? Well, what about, uh, what was it, Joe, that died in the war? Right. Yeah. Or, I mean, but uh, there's, there's... It's hard because I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not a, a Kennedy cheerleader. I can understand that there is, there's just as much shady things as there are, you know, good things too. But uh, at the same time, you do have to look at it and say, how much is too much for one family to have to deal with? Especially when I was talking about this earlier, that if theoretically there could have been I'm trying to do math in my head. What's eight times three? Twenty-four? There could have been 24 straight years of Kennedys. Had Jack not died, had Bobby not died, and Ted could have followed in there. But they could have had, I mean, people don't understand how popular Ted was at that time. They could have had Mm. a real dynasty. They could have been the closest thing to royalty this country would ever see. Okay. And if you've looked at some of the the good programs they put in place, you've got to think the world might have looked a lot different in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and up to now had we had 24 years of Kennedys. You can... It would, can, it would definitely be different. I'll grant you that. We can uh, We can fight about how much of that would have been good and how much of it would have been bad. But uh, some of it, that that I, those type of shows are during the day, right? That's I I can't. That's the thing. I can't in my role here at the station. I can't get political, so I try not to anyway. I prefer not to. When I was hosting a Saturday morning show, uh, you know, when I was doing a, a general talk show Saturday mornings, that was a time when I. Could have gotten political, and I, and for the most part, I, I kept it down the middle. But there was also the. I'm gonna, I'm just going to uh, forward this to to Matt so we can try and see if we can get Dan on the phone because I know he's, I know he's traveling, but we can get a, an idea of. Okay. His ETA, but even when I could get political, I let the audience do it, you know, and I kind of just moderated, in in between. You mean refereed. Pretty much. <laughs> That's what it comes down to when you get into political discussions. It's not moderation, it's refereeing. I think yeah. you I think you got the information there, Matt. Just let me know if you need it again. If you want to try and reach out to him and get an idea. Okay. He's Oh no, here we go. We've got the VIP line ringing. All right, I think we do have our guest on the line, although he's hearing the Red Sox right now and probably getting really confused because I didn't tell him that, that would be the case. But uh, we will we'll bring him on right now. Our guest for this evening, a specialist on organized crime and political corruption investigation since 1974. 
Best-selling author and independent investigative journalist Dan E. Moldea has published nine nonfiction books, The Hoffa Wars, Teamsters, Rebels, Politicians, and the Mob, The Hunting of Cain, A True Story of Money, Greed, and Fratricide, Dark Victory, Ronald Reagan, MCA, and the Mob, Interference, How Organized Crime Influences Professional Football, and of course, the book we'll be talking about tonight, The Killing of Robert F. Kennedy, An Investigation of Motive, Means, and Opportunity, and he's also focused on things such as the OJ trial and so many more things, and, uh, and certainly we could have an entire month's worth of shows with our guest tonight, but tonight we're going to be focusing on the RFK assassination as we approach the 50th anniversary. Dan Moldea joining us. Uh, good evening, Dan. Are you with us? I am with you. How are you? Thanks for the invitation. Oh, we are very well. Thank you for joining us. And, uh, and I mentioned at the beginning of the show that uh, we've been doing the show for a long time, and from time to time we try to use this format to talk to the people who influenced us and influenced our own outlook on the world. And certainly uh, you are one of those people with the work that you have done. So thank you for joining us. It is our honor. My pleasure. Thank you. Now, kick my ass here with your questions. Go. Go for it. <laughs> we're talking about the Bob Kennedy case. You guys going to softball me here or what? What are you going to do? No, there's, there's, we're, gonna, <laughs> we're not going to softball anything tonight because – uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, and I, and I think I mentioned to you in the email, Dan, we've never really covered this case in depth in all the years that we've done this show. And mm -hmm. there's so many different things to talk about and, and so many different ways to come at it. But I, I just want to come at it from a way that kind of both of us got involved in, in interest in this case. And that was through our, our mutual acquaintance, uh, Phil Melanson. That's right. Phil was the first person. He and his uh, associate, Greg Stone, came to me back in 1985. And they were looking for an investigative journalist to come into this case and to do a story that would uh, try to provoke the city of Los Angeles to release the secret RFK file out of the LAPD. And so I put that story together. And while my, uh, my while the I was a cover story at Regardies Magazine, a, a, a magazine here in Washington D.C., and I got great support from uh, the Washington Post and from the uh, Los Angeles Times. And while the magazine was still on the newsstand, the city of Los Angeles ordered the LAPD to release its files, and they did. They sent their files to the uh, state archives in Sacramento where they were archived and they were available for public inspection, I'm proud to say, in 1988. And everything that has come out about this case since then came out as a result of that uh, that um, that file dump onto the state archives, which resulted from the story I had written in 1987. And in putting that together and, and, and doing the research into that, and, and probably already beforehand, because, you know, having seen what went on with the original investigation, the original trial, all of that stuff, you probably went into this with some idea of what you thought had happened. I, I did. I, I, was listening to, I was listening to Greg and to Phil, and both of them believed that there were two guns fired at the crime scene. And they believed that a, a security guard uh, at the scene, a guy with a gun in his hand and powder burns on his face, a gentleman by the name of Thane Eugene Caesar, had uh, been the actual killer of, uh, of Senator Kennedy. And so that was kind of where I started my investigation. Is there were there were a bunch of discrepancies in the evidence. The LAPD had sort of mishandled some of the evidence they had obstructed independent attempts to review the critical issues of the case and and they had destroyed a lot of material evidence as well and so i had to go in there with the job to deal with this this evidence for instance um 
there was an FBI report that came out associated with um, their own crime scene investigation a day or so after the, the shooting at the Ambassador Hotel on June 5th, 1968, almost 50 years ago to the day. And as they were in the report, they had four holes which were circled and these holes were alleged, not alleged by the FBI, but claimed to the F, by the FBI to have been bullet holes. Uh, now, Sirhan had an eight-shot, twenty-two caliber Ivor Johnson revolver, and he had hit three Kennedy three times, and there were five other shooting victims in the room. Kennedy was the only one who was killed. The kill shot for him was the shot that hit him at contact range behind the right ear. He would have survived the other two. The Ivor Johnson 22 that Sirhan was holding was a was a pop gun. It was a Saturday night special. It was uh, you had to get really close in order for it to get the wallop that you wanted to. And again, because he got right behind Kennedy's ear, um, that was that, once again that was the kill shot. The senator lived for another day. He died on June 6th at 1:44 a.m. But back to the the bullet holes. The FBI had said these are not alleged bullet holes or reported bullet holes. They said these are bullet holes. That's what they said in their report. Now, when you got Kennedy getting hit three times, you got five other victims, and they pull one bullet out of each of them. Now, Sirhan's gun could only shoot eight shots. Now, I'm not a ballistics expert or a firearms identification expert. I don't know a land from a groove, but I could tell you this an eight shot revolver can't fire more than eight bullets. And we've got the FBI identifying four bullet holes in Sirhan's line of fire, in the walls and door frames in Sirhan's line of fire. And that was daunting. This isn't some conspiracy kook saying this. This is the Federal Bureau of Investigation saying extra bullets. And um, and so that was daunting. And, and, and then there was the situation with there was a – when Sirhan was convicted in 1969 – uh, there was a retesting of his gun uh, five years later, in 19, or six years later, in 1975. The court appointed a firearms panel to retest. Now, they were able, it, when they're retesting, they were able to match three intact bullets that were pulled out of the victims, one from Kennedy and two from the other victims, and they were able to match these three bullets with each other, but they were not able to match it with Sirhan's gun. So that also caused the problem with the second gun. Also, there was the question of muzzle distance because the because the autopsy, which nobody disputes, which was uh, done by Thomas Noguchi, uh, the famous uh, Los Angeles County coroner, he had said, you know, again, contact shots. The problem was is that nobody had seen Sirhan's gun get that close. In fact, really. There weren't people who had seen Kennedy actually get shot. And so a lot, because of these and other problems with the, with, the, uh, with the official investigation, it looked like there were two guns in the room. So, yeah, when I first went into this, I thought there were two guns. I thought Gene Caesar was the actual killer. And then I went after Gene Caesar. And I found him, spent hundreds of hours probably investigating him and interviewing him. And... Um, you know, I, uh, you know, he kept on contradicting himself, and um, it was like, um, in one version, he would tell me that he saw the flashes coming from C 
Sirhan's gun, and then he drew his gun, a thirty-eight, his sidearm, and he fell to the floor. Uh, in another version, he sees the flashes coming from Sirhan's gun, and he falls to the floor, and he comes up with his gun drawn. In another, in another version, he sees Kennedy fall to his left. In another version, he sees him fall to his right. In another one, he doesn't even see him fall at all. Plus, he had a gun, a twenty-two caliber revolver, with the same class characteristics as Sirhan's Ivor Johnson. It was a twenty-two Harrington and Richardson. It was a nine-shot. It was a nine-shot weapon, but when he was, what was disturbing about this is when he was questioned by the police, he said that he had sold the gun six, six weeks after the murder, uh, when in fact, uh, um, or six weeks before the murder, rather, when in fact he had sold it six weeks after the murder. And then so that was dawning as well, and so I said to Caesar, you know, hey, you know, you got to, you got to, Stick to a story, man. You know, I'm not. I, you know, you're making this very difficult for me. And his attorney, uh, Gar- Garland Weber, I remember him well. He said, "What do you think, Dan?" And I said, "I don't know what to think." He keeps contradicting himself. He has all these conflicting versions of what happened. He can't. He doesn't stick to the story. He keeps changing his story. And so I said, um, "Are you willing to be hypnotized or be do a lie detector test, a polygraph?" And he said, I'll do either one. So I went to a federal prosecutor friend of mine out in L.A., uh, a guy who was a former prosecutor for the U.S. Strike Force Against Organized Crime out there. And he said, you know, if you hypnotize him, it'll be tantamount to tampering with a witness. So why don't you polygraph him and see how he does? And so I found the best polygraph opera I could find and his name was Edward Gelb. He was the president of the American Polygraph Association. He was a legend in this in this business. And he said to me, you know, Dan, I can get one of my associates to do this for a few hundred bucks, and, you know, it would be quick and easy for you. You know, but if I do it, it's going to cost you a lot of money. I said, listen, Mr. Gelb, you're the best. I want the best for this because if you do it, it'll be believed. Mm-hmm. So let's have you do it. Now, I'm sure you know that, Sitting down for a polygraph is not, you just sit down, you get wired up, and you answer, you know, five control questions and five home run questions, and, you know, you call it a day. You you wait to see the results. It's a complicated process. It was like two, three hours of interviews with Caesar where they asked some very complicated questions and and drew drew out uh, answers from him about what had happened that night so that he could get a read on this guy. That's part of the talent of the polygraph operator and so um, um, Caesar took the polygraph test while his attorney and I were out at some greasy spoon out on Sunset Boulevard uh, having breakfast and uh, we came back and and uh, Caesar was sitting there comfortably with a smile on his face and I said to Gal what's the deal and he said this man passed with flying colors this man did not kill Robert Kennedy I needed some. The reason why I'd done the polygraph test is because I needed some test or measurement to show how much time and money I was going to have to spend on this thing. After seeing, I've been a freelance writer for 44 years. I mean, it's always coming out of my pocket, mm-hmm. and so I, you know, I always just wanted to be Joe the boss of my own operation, and so I needed some test or measurement to see how much time and money I was going to spend on this guy. And I told Caesar before he went into the polygraph, I said, if you fail this polygraph test. I'm going to be on your ass day and night. I will spend every cent that I have. I will spend every waking moment going after you. And when he passed the polygraph test, 
It was not the end-all, it be-all, but it gave me a pretty clear indication that this guy was most likely an innocent man wrongly accused. So I focused my attention then on going to Sirhan. So I wound up um, getting in to see Sirhan. I had three interviews with him, lasting about a total of 14 hours. And at the end of those interviews, uh, it became very clear to me that uh, Sirhan had done it, and he had done it alone. He dismissed any any uh, pretense of a conspiracy. He dismissed uh, any thought of him being mind-controlled, as so many of the conspiracy people are saying right now, that he was programmed to kill and programmed to forget about it, which is, of course, ridiculous. And they're talking about polka dot dress girls and tapes where they're showing 13 shots that occurred. Again, nonsense. Um, when I published my 1995 book, uh, the killing of Robert F. Kennedy, uh, it, was the, it was the solution that I did not start with because I started with there were two guns. But I was wrong when I said that, and I kept this case uh, alive a lot longer than it should have been because of all this so-called new evidence that I was coming up with of additional bullets and everything else. And, but I had, when I had... What I had done was I had told my publisher, I had promised my publisher, W.W. Norton, for this book. They had given me $75,000 to write a conspiracy book. I had promised them a conspiracy, that Sirhan did not do it, that it was Caesar, there were two guns in the room, and uh, um, <laughs> that's what I thought. When I first got into it, when Phil, your friend Phil, my friend Phil, um, Phil Melanson, when he first came in. See, the reason why I was attracted to this was because I had written a book in 1978 called The Hoffa Wars, and it was about the rise and fall of Jimmy Hoffa. And in this book, I had alleged that Jimmy Hoffa, the president of the Teamsters Union, along with Carlos Marcello, a mafia guy, the mafia head from New Orleans, and Santo Traficante, the boss of the the Tampa, Florida mafia, had arranged and executed uh, John Kennedy's murder in 1963. And I believe that the reason why John Kennedy was murdered was because of his brother, Bob Kennedy, the attorney general's relentless assault on the mafia. I mean, when Bob Kennedy was was head of the Senate Rackets Committee in 1957 and 1960, I mean, he was eating mafia guys for breakfast. And then when he became attorney general, he started eating them for lunch and dinner, too. He was probably the greatest crime fighter ever. And so when Kennedy wound up dead, and I started looking at this in 1985, after being approached by Greg and Phil, I thought it was possible that Hoffa, Marcello, and Traficani had had put the contract out on him as well. Right. And, and, and uh, I, I know... And, but in my conclusion that Sirhan did it and did it alone, it's, you know... It, the, the mafia should have built a gigantic statue to this to this murderer uh, because he um, he really um, he really stopped the comeback of Robert Kennedy, who was going to finish the job against the mafia. Um, and, and, and I with, know with with Bob Kennedy's death, in fact, the mafia just became supercharged once again. 
I, I know that. I bet you uh, got a few questions in here. I'm just yammering <laughs> on. Here. No, I'm I'm listening. I'm fascinated. But uh, I know that uh, Caesar, you know, had some anti-Kennedy. Uh, you know, he's very overtly anti-Kennedy. So, uh, but did you see some connections between uh, Traficante and the mob and and Caesar? Did you see any way that the, that they would have been somehow related? I looked. I looked hard. I was a, I was a little concerned about. I I, um, I was concerned about. I had been hearing a lot of rumors about. Uh, Caesar was a plumber. That's was that was his trade. He has he has a high school diploma, and he has a couple years of junior college without an associate degree. But he became a plumber, and he was a contract plumber at um, Hughes Hughes Tool Company, I guess it was. And it was alleged that he had all these organized crime connections, and I just don't see it. I mean, I really, I mean, that's my specialty is organized crime, and I just. I just didn't see the connections to organized crime with him or with Sirhan. When I went and I talked to Sirhan, I wanted to see whether Sirhan had these connections. I mean, if he was studied to be a jockey, there was there was one particular guy who we had connected to organized crime, a guy named Frank Donamura, a.k.a. Henry Ramastella, who was kind of close to Sirhan. In fact, Sirhan had mentioned him in those weird notebooks that he had written. RFK must die, and he was talking about Frank Donamura owing him some money or something like that. And so that was that was suspicious. Um, but even, uh, once again, I mean, Sirhan said to me, he said, listen, if there was a conspiracy, it probably would have unraveled by now. And I said, then why don't you just admit it? <laughs> why don't you submit that you did it? Because Sirhan's always thought that he was drunk that night. He's always said that he was drunk. He didn't remember anything. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, I said, why don't you submit it? He says, well, why should I admit it when there's people like you going out there and, and creating all of these exculpatory pillars for me to lean on? Uh, why should I admit it when there's evidence out there that says that I didn't do the crime? So, and then in- that's when I sort of figured out this is his angle. As long as there's guys like me out there who are coming up with this so-called new evidence um, of a second gunman, why should he, why should he admit guilt? So the Sirhan Sirhan that we're seeing uh, in in and these... it was a very that final interview that we had was very very hostile. I, I I had gone up with his brother Adele Sirhan, a very fine person, on all three interviews, and I said to him uh, when we were driving up to Corcoran State Penitentiary, which is where he was, and I said to Adele, I said, really, I'm going to get in his face about this because I'd had a conversation. It was this is like in my last interview with him was on June 5th, 1994. And the week before, I was in Los Angeles for the American Booksellers Convention. I was on a symposium about a litigation I was involved in. And um, I was having lunch with my editor, Star Lawrence, from W.W. Norton. And he said, he had, I had sent him 27 chapters of my book, which made it look like there was a conspiracy. And he said, I mean, I've read these 27 chapters. Fantastic, man. I'm absolutely convinced. Two guns in the room, and uh, Sirhan didn't do it, and Caesar did, and... Wow, man. And then I said, listen, uh, Star, and he goes, what? And I said, listen, I've been talking to Sirhan. And he said, and what? And I said, he may have done it. And he may have done it alone. And he said, what? And I said, yeah. I said, I'm going to have a third interview with him uh, this coming Sunday, June 5th. And uh, which would have been, what, the uh, 26th anniversary of the murder. And I said, and then I'll, I'll know. And he pointed to me, and he said, you better make this work, because I, once again, I had turned in a conspiracy 
uh, proposal, book right. proposal. I had promised to deliver a conspiracy. And so, um, and they had actually st- stapled it to my contract. I was afraid they were going to have make me give back the $75,000 and everything else. But in the end, uh, what I did was, and, I, and once again, after that third interview on June 5th, 1994, I was convinced that Sirhan did it, did it alone, and that's the way I was going to write it. And so my publisher thought that I had vindicated my integrity. Let me toot my own horn a little bit. He thought I had vindicated my, my integrity, but he thought I was going to get slaughtered by the critics uh, because of my 180 cave, which is probably what it was. Uh, and... Um, and so I um, I wrote the book like a Columbo. I don't know if you remember that old show, oh, yeah. uh, that Detective Columbo, where you knew in advance who did it, and the adventure was not so much in the destination, but during the trip to get there. The book sold miserably uh, at the box office, but I got some. I got the greatest reviews of my life uh, for that book. I got uh, I got not one but two great reviews from the New York Times. Uh, the Newsweek, Newsweek gave me a great one. The Washington Post, that was a funny one. They had given me a review that was that uh, was written by a very distinguished British historian who claimed that he was in the crowd a few feet from the senator. That's a direct quote. In the crowd a few feet from the senator when when uh, the shooting started. And uh, this was to give himself the bona fides, I guess, to say that he could judge my work. And then um, after giving me this bad review, the very next day I got a call from a friend of mine who's in the FBI, and he said, geez, I saw that horrible review about your book in the Washington Post yesterday. I said, I said, yeah, you know, I was checking the records. This guy wasn't even among the 77 people who was who were listed by the LAPD as eyewitnesses, in the, even in the room, just being in the room. And he said, well, happy birthday. And I said, happy birthday. It's not my birthday. And he says, it's not. He said, well, turn on your fax machine. I'm going to send you some. So he sends me the uh, interview, the official FBI interview with this guy, this distinguished British historian who claimed that he was right there a few feet from the senator when the shooting started. And it turned out he was outside in the parking lot, wow. and according to his own interview with the FBI. And then I had found a book that he had written about uh, uh, 1968, Political Melodrama, I think it was called, where he was – uh, saying that he was nowhere near the crime scene at the time of the shooting. So he had given three different versions of where he was. So I had some fun with the Washington Post responding to that, but all my other reviews were pretty doggone good. And uh, it was probably the best book I've written. It's not my favorite book, but it was certainly my best book, I think. Well, I, I do find it interesting, too, that uh, you know, Sirhan Sirhan gives you all this information and, and gives you kind of his his guilt uh, whereas even to this day if you watch the probation hearings uh, the, the parole hearings you watch those uh, on on youtube or you see them on the news you know he's still trying to perpetrate this theory that uh, he probably wasn't involved that he feels like right. you know he he wasn't part and somehow he let that guard down for you i mean he did he did and he was he was let me tell you he was pissed off when he saw my book when he saw what i had done that I had turned around because he, he, I mean, I even say in my book, I said, Sirhan gave me the look like, what's he going to do? I mean, he wasn't too concerned about it. Here I was getting into it with him. And I mean, I'm six foot four and like 245 pounds. I mean, Sirhan is like five foot four, five foot five and like 135. This guy, he got so mad at me, squared off on me at the, in the prison visitation room. Wow. And um, he, uh, but he, but he sat down and calmed down because I think he, 
I think he he kind of said to himself, "What's Mulday going to do? He's going to say, I, I, you know, I'm guilty after all the evidence he's come up with saying that I'm not." I, I, and, and that's why it was it was it was it was it was not rough for me to admit I was wrong because I was clearly wrong. I mean, I had to go back and see how the evidence, why the evidence appeared as it did. For instance, the three the three test the three bullets that were retested in 1975. This has been a mystery for years and, and had brought a lot of second-gun conspiracy theorists into this, and, and it had certainly intrigued me. I certainly used it on my list. What was the reason? Why couldn't they? Why could these three slugs be matched with each other, but they couldn't be matched with Sirhan's gun? What had happened was I started interviewing cops. I had interviewed 114 cops uh, who, were, who were part of the crime scene investigation, and so I said, I said to these guys, I said, you know, what'd you see that night? What'd you do? And when this three, you know, you know, think when the three slugs who match each other but don't match Sirhan's gun came up, I, I went to the crime lab guys and I said, okay, what happened here? How come you couldn't make a match? And one of them pulled me off the side and says, well, listen, this is what happened. Um, after Sirhan was convicted in 1969, you know, we're professionals here. We're specialists. We take great pride in our work as firearms identification experts, as ballistic experts. And we like to keep souvenirs. And so they took Sirhan's gun and they um, they and they went put it into a water and fired it into a water tank uh, hundreds, probably hundreds of times, collected the slugs and then they put them in uh, these plastic display cases where all the guys in the firearms identification got these souvenirs that they could tack, take home and ha- add to their collection of slugs from famous murders, the guns from f- commit- committing famous murders. And but when you when you shoot the hell out of a of a gun like that, it's going to change the the lands and the grooves and the connellers and everything else inside the muzzle of the gun. And thus, six years later, in 1975, when the court appointed this firearms a panel, they could match the three slugs with each other, but they could not match it with Sirhan's gun because the gun had just been ravaged by these souvenir hunters in the, in the LAPD crime lab. So that was an explanation that I came up with that. On the, on the um, matter of the extra bullets, the circled holes, what had happened was Kennedy didn't want a police presence there because the Watts riots had just occurred. And he, um, he he had no bodyguard there except for this one FBI agent named Bill Barry who was unarmed. Um, there were hotel security guys there like Caesar. They had, there were, I think, a half a dozen guys, security guys, and they were, they were basically there for crowd control. They worked for the hotel. And so... Um, Because there was no there was no police presence when the shooting occurred, no law enforcement agency was at the scene. Uh, but there was a contingent of sheriff's deputies who were at the IBM building close to the Ambassador Hotel guarding the ballots from the county election that night, and they ran over and they formed a wedge. And they cleared out the crime scene, got everybody out of there, because it was just, the people were just tearing it apart. They were screaming and grieving, and it was horrible. And there was, again, 77 people in this very, very crowded pantry. 
And so no one had ever tried to figure out who had made these holes, I mean, who had circled the holes. So I got a magnifying glass, and I could see this scribbling. It was like up and down, up and down, up and down. It was like like a bunch of W's, up and down, up and all, all joined together. And then there was LASO, and then there was 723, the number 723. Now, at that time, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department was known as the Los Angeles Sheriff's Office, so it was LASO. So I called a friend of mine who was a source at the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, and I and I said, listen, you guys were known as Los Angeles Sheriff's Office in 1968. And he said, yeah. And I said, do me a favor. Could you check to see who had badge 723 on June 4, 1968? So the, the primary election was on June 4, 1968. Senator Kennedy was shot at 12.15 a.m. on June 5th. 1968, and he had died at 1.44 a.m. on June 6th. This is all Pacific time. Anyway, uh, my source came back, and he said, bad 723 at that time was a gentleman by the name of Walter Two. I said, spell it. He says, Walter T-E-W. And then you could with picture him writing W-T-E-W, up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. W-T-E-W. And so um, so I said, where is he? I'd like to t- interview him. And he said, uh, he's he's um, he's dead. He had died about 18 months earlier. And I said, does he have a number for his family, for a widow or something? I'd like to talk to her. And so he gave me the home number. So I called up the widow, and I said, uh, ma'am, my name's Amal Day. I'm a journalist, and I, you know, I'd like to talk to you about your husband. Uh, at the Robert Kennedy murder scene, there's only one person who really marked something there, left his mark, literally, at the crime scene, and that was your husband. So let me ask you, um, how long was he in the firearms, depart- firearms identification department? How long was he a ballistics guy with the sheriff's department? And he said, oh, my goodness. He, she said, uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't a firearms identification, or he was a motorcycle cop. I said, excuse me? She goes, yeah, yeah, he, he was a motorcycle cop. So what apparently had happened was when Two, who was at the IBM building that night, and he was part of the contingent of sheriff's deputies who ran over to the crime scene at the ambassador, formed a wedge, and dragged and got everybody out of there, apparently he had seen some holes, these four holes, and he apparently just decided, somebody either told him or something, but he decided to circle and identify these holes. And I talked to his commander. And he said, yes, that's the way he would mark his evidence back in that time, back at that time. So, okay, that explained that, that everybody walking by there, and all these dozens of cops walking by there who said that they'd seen extra bullets, um, and, and explained that. But what about the FBI? What, what's this with the FBI report where they're identifying bullets, not alleged bullet holes or reported bullet holes, but bullet holes? So I found the I found the guy who had done the report, or at least that part of the report, and he was not an FBI special agent per se. He was not like a field agent. He was in the photo lab. And so I tracked him down to West Covina, California, which was a little east of uh, Los Angeles. And he uh, and this guy was really upset when I showed up at his. He wouldn't talk to me on the phone. He kept hanging up on me. So I ambushed him at his house, and he really was upset. He was very upset with me. 
and um, and then I came back a second time, like a week later, and he, I think, I think he was ready to shoot me. He was he was so agitated. I said, "Sir, all I want to know, just why did you identify these holes as bullet holes in your report?" And he said, uh, "Get out of here! I don't want to have anything to do with you." Wow. So I had to go back into the state archives and the files that I helped get released. And I went to the state archives, started going through reports. And I found a report from Griner about his his walkthrough at the crime scene when he had put this evidence together for on behalf of the photo lab. And I was wondering which criminalist or firearms identification expert from the LAPD had identified these as bullet holes, which made him comfortable to say these are in fact bullet holes. According to his report, there was no FB, there was no LAPD person even there at the scene. It was a hotel clerk, an assistant hotel clerk at that, who gave him the tour of the crime scene. And when he saw these circled holes, which had been circled by Wall 2, during the minutes after the shooting when the LAPD, LASO came in there to clean out the crime scene, it was because the assistant hotel clerk had identified these holes as bullet holes that the FBI took this as gospel and said that these are bullet holes. So it wasn't like conspiracy nuts who were saying that um, that there were two guns in the room based on nothing. This is the FBI and the LAPD who were providing massive evidence to legitimate critics at that time, like Phil and Greg, and I should throw Paul Schrade in there too, because Paul Schrade was who was one of the five uh, people who got shot that night. Paul was walking right behind Kennedy, when the shooting started, in fact, I think if you if you if you look at the if you look at the LAPD's bullet inventory as to how they think the shooting came down, they say that Kennedy was killed with the first shot. Well, if that's what happened, then there's two guns in the room uh, because nobody who was watching that that opening shot saw Searhan's gun get anywhere near that close, and so. Um, so if you believe the LAPD's uh, crime, uh, the bullet inventory, it's two guns in the room. But what I believed was um, I had talked to a guy who was a member of the – he was an investigator for uh, Sirhan's defense team. His name was Mike McCowan. And Mike told me that he was – remember, Sirhan says he was drunk that night. He doesn't remember anything. And he uh, – and so Mike is talking. You know, he's debriefing his, his – um, you know, his charge, and Sirhan starts talking about the moment his eyes meet Kennedy's. And shocked, Michael, he goes, well, I'm going to let him go with this. I never. He, he always says he doesn't remember anything. Now he's telling me something here. And he so he just goes along with this, and he says, well, why don't you just shoot him between the eyes, Sirhan? And Sirhan replies, because that son of a bitch turned his head at the last second. Now, if you assume that the first shot missed Kennedy, and that all the eyewitness testimony that Sirhan's book never a gun never got that close. It's all based on that first shot. And I believe that that first shot missed Kennedy when remember Sirhan's running at Kennedy and he is saying, Kennedy, you son of a bitch and what's Kennedy gonna do? He's gonna stand there, he's gonna stand there like a you know, and stick his chest out and say, Come and get me He's gonna. He's gonna. He's gonna. What he did was he turned. He was at the edge of a steam table, which was bolted to the floor. And when he saw Searhan lunging at him, attacking him, shouting at him, 
So Kennedy, you son of a bitch. Kennedy moved to the left, uh, exposing his, the, his, his back, putting his hand up in a defensive posture. That's what he did. But he was up against the steam table, which was bolted to the floor. I think the first shot misses Kennedy, and it hits his friend Paul Schrade in the head. Now, according, I've interviewed Paul Schrade, and Paul Schrade has been at the epicenter of every conspiracy theory about this case since 1974. Uh, he is the one who's kept this case alive longer than anybody. He is the one who went to Sirhan's uh, parole hearing in 2016 and apologized to Sirhan, apologized to him for having shot him in the head, saying that he doesn't believe that he had actually killed Senator Kennedy, that he didn't fire any of the shots that hit Kennedy, and that he apologized to him for not working harder all these years to get him out of jail because he was an innocent man wrongly accused. You know, I've known Paul since 1985, when, again, when I met Phil and I met Greg. And, you know, I love Paul. Uh, Paul is a, he's a hero to all of us. He's a beloved guy. He is, he is uh, an icon of that evening. He's a terrific guy. But, I thought what he did with his apology to Sirhan was absolutely shameful. I lost so much respect for him as a result of doing that, that in my previous work, you will see that I say that Kennedy was, somebody fell accidentally into Kennedy and bumped him into the steam table, which was bolted to the floor, and that he turned his back, which is where Sirhan caught him, at point-blank range, was able to shoot him three times, including the kill shot between the right ear. But now that I, but now I believe that after this shameful performance by Paul, God bless him, he's 93, he looks great and everything else, but he's 93. But I think that with this shameful apology, this, 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 this unrelenting conspiracy baiting that he has led all of these years, I think it's time for Paul to come into the arena with the rest of us for a little bit of scrutiny and a little bit of criticism where necessary. Because I believe that the person who went into Kennedy and pushed him into the steam table, which was bolted to the floor, where he stood him up and where Sirhan could get him at point-blank range, was Paul Schrade. Wow. Because Paul Schrade said his last view was watching Kennedy, he was Kennedy, Paul was moving forward. He was walking forward. Kennedy had stopped. He was shaking hands with a busboy four to five feet in front of him. And then he turned, and Paul said his last image was Paul was Kennedy turning after the handshake towards the steam table. And at that point, I believe that's where, Ken, that's where, that's where Sirhan launches his attack. Sirhan, uh, Bobby Kennedy turns his head defensively, turns his back. The first shot misses. Bob Kennedy hits Paul Schrade in the head, and Paul Schrade falls into Senator Kennedy, pinning him against the steam table where Sirhan's able to get him at point-blank range. Paul was completely unconscious at the time. It was a total accident. It was unwitting. It was, and I think that if Paul thinks that's what happened, and I think that's what he believes, I brought it up with him one time, and it was clearly a taboo subject with him. It was a sore subject with him. 
I think it's time that he lets himself off the hook because it's not his fault. Because if you assume that the first shot missed Kennedy and hit Paul Schrade, and Paul Schrade fell into Kennedy and pushed him into the steam table, which was bolted to the floor, where Sirhain was able to get a clear three-contact shot on him, then it explains half the conspiracy theories away right there, because right. it explains why the evidence appeared as it did. And and it also seems, too, that uh, with... We, we talked a little bit about this at the beginning of the show uh, before you joined us, that there seems to be so much of factual, empirical evidence that keeps the idea of a conspiracy at bay that people have to turn to the more fantastical stuff. You know, the, the Manchurian candidate theory, uh, right. you know, the, the, the girl in the polka dot dress, all of this stuff. Well, that, there's another ridiculous story, the girl in the polka dot dress girl. Well, but, I mean, I do, I do believe, I forget the name of the witness, but I do believe... I do believe she may have heard somebody come out and say, uh, you know, something about getting Kennedy. But I, they could have very much said, you know, they killed, not we killed. But just in the well, in there the, was, remember there was an anti-Kennedy demonstration there in the front of the hotel as well. Not everybody there was wish, well wishers of Senator Kennedy. There were there were three other parties going on at simultaneously in that hotel, two, uh, one of which was for a Republican, Thomas Kekel, and um, and. Um, in fact, that's where Sirhan first went. First, first, he first went to the Kiko party, and that's where he had the drinks. He had, he said he, it was a hot night, and he had three Tom Collins. He said they tasted like lemonade. He drank them fast and everything else. So, but I, I hear what you're saying with the polka dot dress girl. I mean, the story is that as a woman comes up the um, the back stairs, the fire escape, and she's with uh, Sandy Serrano sitting there on the steps, and she sees this woman in a polka dot dress, and there's two guys with her, one of whom looks like Sirhan. And so she she goes it to the ambassador, and then X amount of minutes later, she comes running out with one of the guys, not the guy who looks like Sirhan, saying, uh, we shot him, we shot him, we shot Senator Kennedy, something, words to that effect. Now, picture this. You're part of a sophisticated conspiracy to murder a famous person and after completing the murder you run out of the crime scene taking credit for it at the top of your lungs it doesn't make sense no it doesn't it makes no sense whatsoever i've never taken the whole polka dot dress girl thing seriously and there was a guy that we we, we have found a photograph of a woman in a polka dot dress and she's with a guy who kind of looks like Sirhan, and he was and he was taken into he was he was taken into custody and photographed. Now it could have been that guy. I don't think Sandy Serrano is not telling the truth. I just don't think that what she saw has any meaning to anything. Sirhan told me that he 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 doesn't know anything about a polka dot dress. He said he said he said there was a woman in a plain white dress who gave him coffee because he had connected, supposedly he was being connected to the polka dot dress girl who had given him some coffee. He said, the woman who gave me coffee was in a plain white dress. Um, and he even, once again, even Sirhan, when he talked to me, uh, was blowing off the uh, polka dot dress girl uh, theory of that it had, but again, I just don't believe it had any significance whatsoever. I think they're listening in. <laughs> we heard a little bit of a uh, a weird phone echo, and and we were. We, yeah, I'm, I'm hearing it here too. We were saying earlier that we weren't going to play that card of the you know the the conspiracy 
they don't want us to get the truth out card, but you know, it's weird stuff's going to happen anyway. Uh, Dan, would you be interested? Well, believe me, on this on this case, you know, like I said, with the JFK murder, you know, again, I think it was a mob hit. Um, I, I think they or they they uh, arranged it, they executed it. And when my book came out in August of 1978, uh, I took a lot of grief for saying Hoffa, Marcello, and Traficani had arranged and executed that murder. But then a year later, in July of 1979, the U.S. House Select Committee on Assassinations had done a year-long investigation of that murder, and they had concluded in their final report that Hoffa, Marcello, and Traficani. I just uh, sorry about that. I was just putting us on the radio airwaves as well. That Hoffa, Marcello, and Traficani had motive, means, and opportunity to kill the president. And the chief counsel of the committee, Bob Blakey, who's probably the one that's probably the world's expert on organized crime. I mean, he's the guy who wrote the RICO legislation, something we're all going to become very familiar with, I think, when when um, when Bob Mueller starts uh, handing out his indictments in earnest. Um, and um, um, and he, and Bob Blakey said the mob did it. It's a historical fact. Uh, I believe that then, because because I said it a year before the committee said it. And I certainly believe it now. The mob did it. It's a historical fact. In the JFK murder, but in in the Bob Kennedy murder, um, even though I went into this thinking it was Hoffa, Marcello, and Traficani, that it may have been a mob hit, um, in this particular case, Sirhan did it, and he did it alone. Would you be interested in Dan and taking some calls? We have some uh, sure. some calls lined up. All right, Bring if you on. if you you'd like to call in and talk to Dan Moldea, the number is 508-996-0500. We just kicked on the WBSM radio airwaves as well, and uh, we are talking with Dan Moldea about the killing of Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, of course, we are approaching the 50th anniversary of his assassination. Uh, if you would like to call in with questions, 508-996-0500. Good evening. You're on next with Dan Moldea. Yeah, good evening, Tim. How are you? Doing all right. I'm Sorry well, for I the wait there. I can hear you, though. No, that's Can we turn up the fine. volume? I'm going to try and boost it up. The question. Yeah, good evening. I have a question. Um, it, it comes from particularly if you're an investigator motive. It's one thing to have data from the crime scene, and you have the crime scene investigation and all the elements that are involved with that. But... Part of prosecution and investigation is motive. So now when we go to motive at the time, and we don't want to get political, and I I appreciate that Tim did not get political earlier, and I appreciate you, sir, not getting political, but this was a political campaign. So when it comes to motive, it's important to understand at the time of the death of Robert Kennedy, Hubert Humphrey had 561 votes Good point. for the primary yes, right. delegates, the Democrats. Robert Kennedy had 393. Eugene McCarthy had 258. Now, it's important to understand right. Hubert Humphrey was the conservative wing of the Democratic Party. Eugene McCarthy was the leftist radical wing. Robert Kennedy was in the middle. Now, here's what's interesting to understand. What happened is there's only 14 states they had to actually primary in, because the rules of the Democratic Convention were the vast majority of the states went to Lyndon Johnson, and by proxy that went to Hubert Humphrey. He didn't really even have to go and primary or campaign. 
he was going to win due to the super delegate rule of the Democrat Party, much of what happened to Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton in the past election. Now, who would have the motive to murder a presidential, uh, a primary candidate? It's very simple. Hubert Humphrey didn't have the motive. He was going to win automatically unless Robert Kennedy, Eugene McCarthy, either one of those two, if they were eliminated from the race, they would have had enough votes to beat Hubert Humphrey. Therefore, Hubert Humphrey then would have had a motive, and also Eugene McCarthy would have had a motive. And not them specifically, but maybe the apparatuses under them. So in terms of motive, and not just where a gunshot wound was or where a bullet casing was or this server was or that person was, from a status of motive, who, sir, do you reckon actually did this crime? And I'll take my uh, call off the air. Thank you very much for the call. I heard most of that, and I, and I hear what he's saying, and he's right. I mean, Hubert Humphrey had the votes, and there was going to be definitely a floor flight at the 1968 <laughs> Democratic Convention in Chicago, which, as we all know, turned out to be quite, a, quite an event <laughs> in and of itself without Bob Kennedy. Um, remember the police riot, as they called it, um, uh, when Mayor Daley Chicago, that shameless uh, Mayor Daley and what, what the police did uh, to the demonstrators back, the anti-war demonstrators. Anyway, um, you know, show me some evidence that Hubert Humphrey was plotting anything or Linda Johnson or any of these guys. I mean, I don't see it. And again, I, I, you certainly can't put any of these guys together with Sirhan. There's no doubt in my mind that Sirhan is the guy who fires all the shots. So you got to sort of connect him with some some of these people. And you, and you, and you can't. I You know, if if you can... You make history. Well, I mean, if you have to connect uh, Sirhan Sirhan to some sort of a motive, uh, just look at his Palestinian lineage and, and the fact that uh, he was not a fan of, of Kennedy and, and the dealings that they'd had with Israel. Well, he really, you know, that was out there, no doubt about it. And Kennedy, was, that was not sui generis with Kennedy. I mean, he, he was not unique in that. Um, I really believe that this was, all, I think this had more to do with, with Sirhan personally uh, then, I mean, he has, he's made statements, you know, I, you know, it, it, he told Bob Kaiser, he said, I'm famous. It took me seconds to do what, what Bobby Kennedy took his entire life to do, and that was to get famous. Um, you know, was a, he was studied to be a jockey, and he had fallen off a horse, and he kept on falling off the horses. And it was difficult for him to get back on the horses, and he sort of got pegged as a guy who had no nerve, who had lost his nerve. Um, and I think that a lot of this had to do with his determination. Remember, he was a kid at the time. Um, he was 24 years old. I mean, with all due respect to 24-year-olds out there, when I was 24, year old, 24 years old, I didn't know anything. And uh, how old was Lee Harvey Oswald when he, when he supposedly gunned down President Kennedy? 24 years old. So he and Sirhan were the same age. And so... You know, what goes through these guys' minds? As, as far as the JFK murder, I'm convinced that this was a conspiracy to whack the president by the mob. I can connect Oswald to the mob. Uh, certainly I can connect Ruby to the mob. I did in my 1978 book. I made a big deal about it. Um, but um, connecting Sirhan to the mob, it was this one guy, Frank Donamura, but, uh, and I certainly couldn't link him to anybody political. 
And remember, Sirhan was stalking Kennedy, too, for about a week before. This wasn't just one encounter one night. He was stalking him. He was showing up at places where where Kennedy was. I think he had he was showing up at, at least three, di- no fewer than three different places. Hmm. So... I'm well, sorry, go ahead. Uh, this, I, I mean, I, I hate to take a, a real-life situation like this and, and make a connotation to a fictional film, but this reminds me very much of the, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, Ed Norton, Richard Gere film, Primal Fear, where the the suspect uh, played by Ed Norton just puts on this face of of being this hapless, you know, mentally challenged. Ed Norton, uh, is he the guy who played Worm and Rounders? Uh, I'm not sure. I didn't see Rounders. Okay. He was He was in Fight Club, too, and... Uh, he's he's been in a bunch of films, but basically, what an American history X yes, or something. Like yes, that? he was a Nazi or something. He was yes, same same guy. And in in Primal Fear, he plays this guy who was you know a, a sad sack accused of murder, and uh, and Richard Gere is the defense attorney that that gets him off. And at the end of the film, as he gets him off, all of a sudden you just see the real Edward Norton, the the real character, uh, and and he just basically says, you know, you fell for it just like everybody else fell for it, and. Basically, just saying I was pulling the scam on everybody to get away with that's, murder. That sounds pretty good to me. That that sounds like sheer hand to me. Yeah. That's what that's what it sounds like from from the way that you're describing it. And and even to this day, you know, he's still, as I mentioned earlier, still trying to uh, talk about this. And and he's got Robert Robert Kennedy Jr. on his side now. Well, that's that's unbelievable. I mean, I was quoting the there was a story in the Boston Globe yesterday, and. Um, where they had, I mean, pretty much everyone's kind of been letting Bob Kennedy Jr. alone. I won't. Uh, I've talked to him a couple of times over the past few months. And I knew he was thinking about this. I knew that he was he was not believing. But in my conversations with him, it was clear to me that he just really didn't know very much about this case. And so consequently, I thought that he had been, as I was quoted in the Boston Globe yesterday, as saying that Kennedy had been misled he had been conned, and he had been corrupted by the conspiracy crowd who had been trying to make this case for years, led by Paul Schrade, who had been trying to make this case for years that, you know, this this uh, this second gunman thing was around. I mean, right now, uh, Gene Caesar has a target on his back, and uh, people are, you know, really wanting to talk to Gene Caesar. Well, it's no secret that if you want to talk to Gene Caesar, you got to go through me. Uh, I have the keys to uh, Gene's, to talking to Gene Caesar, and I, I will, I'm the only person in the world who's interviewed both Gene Caesar and Sirhan Sirhan. And I, and I, and, and as far as I'm concerned, Caesar has been through enough. He's been accused for 49 years of murdering Senator Kennedy, and here's Bobby Kennedy, I think irresponsibly, coming out and saying that you know there's two guns in the room now. He, he says, "Well, I'm not. I'm not saying it's Caesar. Well, doggone it! If you're not saying it's your hand, then I'm sorry. You're saying it's Caesar because there's nobody else in that room with a gun, right. and um, uh, that we know of. And if I said, I said, Bob, if you have if you have some evidence that somebody else did it, I'd sure like to hear that. I hope you dig that out. But um, you know, I, I just think it's irresponsible to do this because if if it's not your hand, then it's Caesar. And so he, they put." Caesar back on the spot again, and you know this has this has had quite an impact on him and his family over the years. I take a lot of grief because uh, you know I because I, uh, I have Caesar's power of attorney. Uh, when I got him off the four years after my 1995 book came out, he asked me to be godfather to his his youngest son. I agreed. Full disclosure, I agreed. 
you know, I thought this guy's been through enough. And um, I was being approached possibly of, you know, maybe putting Bob Kennedy Jr. together with him. And I certainly would consider that out of respect for the family and for him and to my mentor, Walter Sheridan, who was like a brother to Senator Kennedy, that I would. But, uh, you know, it just became clear to me that this, this, this it, it, trying to arrange something would just be nothing more than an ambush against Caesar where, uh, you know, this very talented attorney, Bob Kennedy Jr., would just, you know, beat the hell out of him with his, with Caesar's uh, conflicting accounts of what had happened, and um, and then <laughs> and then allow viewers to be the judge, you know, and um, you know that would that would not bode well for either the truth or the case or anything. It would be a it would be a fun show, but it would not um, it would not uh, get us closer to the truth. Again, I think I have found that truth, and that is Sirhan did it and did it alone, and Caesar's an innocent man wrongly accused. But um, I mean, I don't, I don't want to have to turn us into armchair psychologists here a bit, but it does beg the question. And and I know, you know, your belief about the JFK case and and, and having it be associated with the mafia, and I feel the same way that there was definitely something uh, beyond just Lee Harvey Oswald in that case. But just looking at the psychology of conspiracy belief, do you think that part of this is just because people look at somebody who is a a great person? Uh, a great man who was probably destined for even more greatness had he lived, suddenly taken down and and silenced forever by somebody completely unremarkable. Is that part of what plays into wanting to believe into these conspiracies? See, what I believe is that, I believe that, um, in fact, let me read this. This is what I believe. This is what I wrote in my book. This is the. Uh, I'm not. I'm. I'm just a grunt crime reporter. That's what I do. I'm good at digging out evidence. That's what I do. But and I don't have a lot of. I'm not good for being analytical about this. But this is in my book. In my book on the Bob Kane murder, this was probably the wisest thing that I said. And let me just read it. It's three small paragraphs. I say, indeed, the LAPD did solve this murder in 1968. But nearly 27 years later, I have solved this case by finally explaining why the evidence of a possible second government appears as it does. Lessons learned, placing it to a new context, what I had known all along about this case, I now realize that even law enforcement officials who possess the training, qualification, and experience to determine the significance of crime scene evidence do make mistakes if their abilities are not put to the test under the proper circumstances and conditions. In other words, if one does not account for occasional official mistakes and incompetence, then nearly every such murder could appear to be a conspiracy, particularly if a civilian investigator like me, with limited access and resources, is looking for one. And I can assure you, back then, I was looking for one. And that was, I think that was corrupting my vision of what this case was about, because I was determined to find a conspiracy because I went into it believing there was a conspiracy. Like I said, my book contract with Norton was based on my belief in writing, you know, that um, that there was a conspiracy in this case. And again, I was wrong. And I had to admit that I was wrong, and I had to go through that humiliation that I was wrong. Again, the critics, you know, really gave me uh, a tremendous boost as a result of my my willingness to admit that I was wrong. But at the box office, 
as far as everybody else was concerned, I was just telling what they already knew, that Sirhan did it and he did it alone. What's the big, what's the big deal here? Well, I, I will use this word, and it sounds like the incorrect word to use, but, you know, there has been some vindication in in that belief that officials can mess up because we've seen the LAPD drop the ball in some other major murder investigations in the time since with OJ and, and well, the I, inability I, I, I to solve remember, the Biggie Smalls. I wrote Smalls. the book uh, with the two lead detectives of the OJ Simpson case, Lang and Van Adder, and I had a chip on my shoulder about the OJ case, too. Those guys knocked that chip right off my shoulder. I mean, they, you know, they said we. The reason why we picked you to write our book is because we wanted a critic of the LAPD. I'm not talking about Mark Furman, the racist Fifth Amendment taking perjurer. I'm not talking about him. That guy, he, he was terrible. I mean, you know, you watch him on Fox News now. You know, A.K.A. Trump State Television, and where he's going to be there talking about uh, 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 police uh, racism and things like that. That's I'm talking about Tom Lang and Phil Van Adder, two stars in the robbery homicide division of the LAPD. These guys did a great job on that investigation, but I hear what you're saying. I, I do hear what you're saying. There are other people who were involved in that investigation who didn't do such a good job or certainly didn't document uh, their, their, their work as, as properly as they should have. I'm sorry, I, I digress. I was well, defending my partners there. Listen, I, I, I have my own bones to pick with Tom Lang anyway. But, but oh, really, what about what to tell me? Well, he's a very fine person. I'll be happy to. No, no, him. it's it's just based totally on his investigation of the Lizzie Borden case that he yeah. did for the History Channel. <laughs> That's. Uh, Bo- I don't think I'm familiar with that. What's that? The the Lizzie Borden uh, case uh, in 1892. She was uh, accused really? of of uh, killing her uh, her mother and her or stepmother and her father uh, with, the axe, with an axe. The yep. With the axe. And uh, and and I want to say it was the early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, they did a special where they had uh, Tom Lang and and another gentleman come in. And, uh, and investigate, you know, kind of go through the process of going through the crime and seeing if they thought Lizzie Borden actually did it. So I just, I, I'm being facetious, of course, but, uh, oh, okay. they, they, they did, they were the first ones to go in there with, uh, with the luminol and, uh, and show the presence of blood, wow. which I was, you know, still to this day, I look at it and say, well, we know there was blood there. Big deal. But, uh, wow. it was, it's. Well, that, that's going to be the same thing. It's going to be in the biggest movie of the year, which is coming up here. I mean, I'm, I consider myself to be the world's expert on three three capers: the Robert Kennedy murder case, the suicide of Vince Foster, the deputy White House counsel under Bill Clinton, and the Jimmy Hoffa murder case. And at the end of this year, in the fall, the biggest movie of the year is going to be coming out, and it's going to be called The Irishman. Uh, it's a it's a story about the life and times of, of a of a hitman named Frank Sheeran, which will be directed by Martin Scorsese. Uh, Frank Sheeran will be played by Robert De Niro. Jimmy Hoffa will be played by Al Pacino. Uh, 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 Joe Pesci is playing Russell Buffalino, the guy who orders the murder of, um, of Hoffa. Um, uh, Harvey Keitel, I think, plays Angelo Bruno. I forget who's playing Tony Provenzano, who was, an, who was a New Jersey organized crime figure who actually engineered the murder of Jimmy Hoffa. And that the murder was run by Provenzano's top lieutenant, a guy named Sal Bergoglio. I'm the only person in the world who's interviewed him, too. I interviewed him four times. And plus, I interviewed all the other alleged conspirators, all at the same time, tape recorder on, three and a half hours at the local 560 Union Hall in Union City, New Jersey. And I, um, this, what, with this fight we're having right <laughs> over the Bob Kennedy case, and it is really quite a fight. It's going to get pretty ugly here in these next few days. Watch this. Pass you your seatbelt for those who are watching this. Um, um, 
this is just a snack. This is an appetizer for the fight that's coming up over this movie on the Jimmy Hoffa murder case, which right. I'm sure is going to be wonderful. I, I consider this to be Martin Scorsese's homage to Oliver Stone's JFK. You know, great cinema, terrible history. <laughs> so. Well, we've we've actually for that. we've got a we've got a mob trial going on right now here. Probably the last New England mob trial they're calling it, with uh, yeah. Cadillac Frank Salemi uh, on sure. murder charges. Uh, so it's you know the well the, the mafia is. Um, you, you watch this. I I, I, had, I was on Nightline on um, September 11th, 1989, and I had just published a book uh, called Interference: Organized Crime Influences Professional Football. In this book, and particularly on that Nightline appearance, I predicted that the uh, sports gambling would be legalized nationwide, and that the NFL owners would be the and the owners of professional sports would be the beneficiaries of legalizing sports gambling. And then the Supreme Court, as you know, about two weeks ago, came out and have legalized sports gambling nationwide, which I believe is just an unmitigated disaster for the entire country. I mean, in any situation of legal legal gambling, it, it, there's going to be a proliferation of illegal gambling and organized crime activity. Um, people are going to understand that the state is taking a huge skim of the handle of the total pool of bets, and they're going to see that they could get a bigger bang for their buck from Charlie the Bookie, the friendly local bookmaker at the corner bar. Corner bar is going to be making put up $11 to win 10 and and only taking a 10% commission, a.k.a. the VIG, on the losing Betsy book. So this is going to be really something that's that's getting ready to come down the pipe because the mafia now, these guys are no longer eighth-grade dropouts. These guys are no longer knuckle-draggers. You know, these guys, some of these guys are Wharton grads and Harvard MBAs. And these guys have gone high-tech, they have gone online, and they have gone offshore outside the reach of the U.S. government. And there's a whole new organized crime, a whole new mafia out there. But uh, with regard to pro football, the mafia is number one, number two money-making activity after drug trafficking is gambling on NFL games. And it's already been said that anyone who has an NFL team franchise, uh, that, that, that the value of that franchise has doubled since the Supreme Court decision, because the NFL team owners have already anticipated this, and they're already buying, they've already bought into the fantasy football leagues and everything else. This is going to be a disaster across the board as far as the integrity of the game, as far as you know, a whole new, a whole, a whole slew of problems are going to be developed as a result of nation, nationwide legalized sports gambling. Well, I can tell you that uh, one of our daytime talk show hosts, Chris McCarthy, is uh, he was very jealous when I told him that we had booked you for the show because he's like, oh, there's so many things I could talk to him about with, with uh, the NFL and gambling and the mafia and Reagan and all this stuff. So uh, I apologize in advance if you start getting a bunch of emails from a guy named McCarthy. That's that's my fault. Sure. You're fine. <laughs> I mean, I, I, right now I'm, I'm like uh... – Right now, I'm in a, I'm, I'm, I'm in this fighting mood here because Robert Kennedy Jr. has decided to jump into this thing. And so, uh, you know, I feel like I have to defend my 33 years of work on this case. I mean, of course, it hasn't been full-time for 33 years. Uh, but, you know, it's the Robert Kennedy murder case is, you know, again, I consider myself the guy on this case. I, I feel like in many ways I own this case. And so if anyone wants to claim that there's a conspiracy in this case after my 1995 book, I, I just sort of feel they got to go through me, just like the Hoffa case. If you think that somebody other than Sal Bergoglio did the murder, uh, for instance, the character that Frank, uh, the, uh, Frank Sheeran, that De Niro's playing, you know, he, at the 11th hour on a deathbed, thing, he, when he couldn't sell his book, he steps up and says, okay, I did it, reluctantly, grudgingly. 
Uh, in fact, he didn't do it. But I did implicate him in the murder conspiracy uh, 26 years uh, before his book came out. And um, and again, that's going to be a dogfight over this. Like I said, the Robert, this fight that we're having right now is just this is just an appetizer compared to what's going to be happening in the fall with over the Hoffa movie, The well, Irishman. I will just end this with one question that came up in the chat room earlier in the show, and that is: in all the time since the publishing of your book, has anything come along that has has changed your mind or or changed your view as to what you wrote all those years ago? On the Robert Kenny murder case, yes, nothing. But there's a there's a there's a very good author named Mel Ayton. Mel Ayton is a, a British historian, and he has really been keeping up on this. And I stay in regular touch with Mel, and he takes a lot of this stuff seriously. And uh, uh, these new books that are coming out and everything else, uh, you know, the new evidence about polka dot dress girls uh, and, and other things. And Mel has really been doing a bang up job uh, on staying on top. Me, I, I haven't seen anything yet that would turn me one iota uh, uh, different than, than the conclusion that I had. And that, once again, is that Searhan did it and he did it alone. Well, if anybody would like to pick up The Killing of Robert F. Kennedy, an investigation of motive, means, and opportunity, you can get it from wherever books are found uh, online and in bookstores. You'll find it in every shelf, every bookstore shelf, uh, absolutely. No, 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 no I'm sorry. I, I, you can only really find it on Amazon. Really? I had, when I got it from Norton, yeah, Norton, they didn't want to, they didn't want to reprint print it for the 50th anniversary. But I, so I said, well, give me my rights back. And so I self-published it. The only place you could find my book, The Killing oh. Robert F. Kennedy, is to go to Amazon and get it. Okay. And just go to my website. I don't sell books, but it, it, my, everything about me and my books is at moldea.com, M-O-L-D-E-A, M-O-L-D-E-A.com. And if you get that, just go to investigative journalism. Dot com. That'll take you me. Uh, no hyphen, no, just investigative journalism, one word, dot com. That'll take you to my website. Well, I got mine when it was first out on the shelves, so that's that's probably. In 1995? Oh, yeah. Well, oh, yeah. Well, that was that, that's when I was in Norton. That's one of the finest publishers in New York. But I, I couldn't believe that they didn't want to do the reprint for this for the 50th anniversary. So I said, well, let me have my rights back. They did. And so I came out with it. There was no Kindle or anything. So I came out with a new paperback with a new afterword. Uh, two appendices on it, a new epilogue, and uh, and also I, I put it on I put it on a Kindle as well. Excellent. Well, there you go. And uh, Moldea dot com is the website. M O L D E A dot com. You can follow him on Twitter at Dan Moldea. And as I mentioned, it, it might as well be called rabbithole.com dot com because once you go to that website, you are falling down that rabbit hole, and you'll be spending hours yeah, reading some of the, the research there. Check out the picture of me and De Niro, where De, that was a that was a big fight we were having. Where De Niro was saying they're trying very hard to make this movie uh, a true story, and I said, Bob, you have been conned. And so, uh, yeah, let's see how this all plays out. Excellent. It's going to be me against Scorsese, De Niro, Pacino, Pesci, Keitel, Steve Zalen, you know, me against the world. And I say fair fight. Well, you know, if you're up for it, when the movie comes out, we'll have you come back on and we'll discuss Please, that case. Please ask me up any, and ask me anytime. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dan, for joining us tonight. Thank you, sir. Have a great have night. Have a good night to you, you and your audience. Thank you. That is uh, Dan Moldea. Again, moldea.com, M-O-L-D-E-A.com. If you would like to... Uh, Check out the website and some of the articles that are up there, some of the research that's up there. Fascinating stuff. And I told you, Moniz, he, nobody knows this case better than, than Dan Maldea, inside and out. Uh, I'm definitely impressed. Uh, I was highly impressed with his knowledge about um, how how it was bungled. I'll call the – was was bungled. Because I was always wondering, uh, you know, 
the four bullet holes, quote unquote, in the door frame. That, that has always bugged me. It's like, because, right. you know, oh, there's, was more than one gun. What are the chances of two of the same gun being in, in the room? That, that's where conspiracy comes into play. Sure, right. You know, uh, as, it, it would make sense for them to decide to both go in there with their 22s. Right, right. And, um, now there's another piece of conspiracy that I want to bring up because I didn't think it, it would be applicable to this. Now we all have heard the rumors about RFK and Marilyn Monroe as well as JFK and right. Marilyn Monroe. Now, uh, you know, Peter Robbins, obviously, mm-hmm. and he's done a, an entire lecture and authored a number of different articles about this. Uh, he was friends with, um, Kilgallen. I don't know if you know who she is, Mary Kilgallen. No, she was so. a, a reporter back in the day and she was also good friends with Marilyn Monroe. Now, supposedly Marilyn was killed because she was about to talk about some things that, you know, both the Kennedy boys had shared with her as far as information. Okay. Some people speculated it had to do with ETs, other people speculating, you know, Russian information about Russia and this and that. But that's why, you know, she was silenced because she got the usual pillow talk you have when you're hanging out with the (laughs) the the movie stars. The point being is that, you know, she was silenced, so to speak. And, um, you may be able to uh, get Peter to talk about it in a future episode. I can get a hold of Peter and maybe yeah, he'll, he'll talk like about it. Sounds like something worth uh, worth discussing. And uh, we are just about out of time for this week's show, but we will be back next week. want to let everybody know real quickly, uh, before we run out of time, paraboxmonthly.com is the place to go to get nice, really soft, comfortable, silk-screened T-shirts that also have puzzles built into them. They can be in the form of codes, ciphers, riddles, numbers, images, or other hidden gems. You can have fun exploring the design and putting the pieces together to figure out where to go next. You can get a month-to-month plan, a three-month plan, or a six-month plan. No contract. Cancel any time. Give it a try. You've got nothing to lose. Ghosts and haunted locations, UFO encounters and aliens, folklore and legends, cryptozoology, Urban Legends, all the stuff that we talk about here on Spooky South Coast, those are the different type of, types of themes they have for Parabox Monthly. Just go to ParaboxMonthly.com, use the promo code SpookyLive, save 10%. So just want to remind everybody about that before we run out of time, but we are out of time now. So until next week, for Matt, for Matt, I'm Tim. Stay spooktacular. <laughs>